Look, I'm going to start reading from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such, such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects, a human, uh, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind, who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labour pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should not surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like the others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Will you pray with me for EU Focus and also for Paddy as he speaks to us today? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for what the EU does on our campus. Today we thank you for the work that the EU's been doing with international students. We thank you for the local students who work alongside the international students and staff in this ministry and we thank you that many students have come to know you as their Lord. We pray for the international students as they deal with a variety of different difficult circumstances in this country and pray that you'll help them persevere if they are Christians 
and that they might be able to be being witnesses to both their friends and even us as well. Today we pray for Paddy as he speaks to us. Let his words be your words and we pray that our hearts will be open and ready to be learning from your word and our lives be changed accordingly. Amen. Uh, for those of you who uh, have got Connect cards, you might like to just be filling those out while uh, I'm getting organised. Uh, there are little cards in there if you want to give us your details and let us know you've been here. That would be very helpful. And uh, you can hand those in uh, to the ushers at the door. Uh, particularly useful if you've got a question of uh, something that I'm talking about. Uh, you can just indicate that on the uh, Connect card and I try and get to those either in the email or in the following weeks. So if you've got questions from today, and you may have questions from today, I'll uh, probably give them to Rowan and uh, he can answer them, uh, seeing as though he'll be here next week. Um, uh, it'd also be helpful if you've got a copy of the passage open in front of you. Uh, the passage that was uh, read for us is the passage that we're going to be spending some time looking at. And uh, I thought we'd start first by doing a quick recap. So let's see where have we come from. Uh, for those of you who like slides, here we go, a couple of slides. Uh, in week four, this is what we looked at uh, when we looked at the first part of 1 Thessalonians. And I tried to suggest to you that Paul has three big ideas concerning the future. Uh, the first is that uh, the Lord Jesus is returning. The second is that God will save his people as he has done in the past throughout the Old Testament and the rest of the biblical narrative. Uh, that's Paul acts, uh, thinks consistently in the light of the uh, return of Jesus. And thirdly, that there will be a time of wrath or judgment that will come. Uh, the second sort of big question that I tried to pose to you is what is it that you are passionate about? Because the thing that we see in the Apostle Paul is that he is passionate about what God is passionate about. And so our question should be, are we passionate about the things that God is passionate about? And thirdly, in the first week, we looked at this idea of what it means to be converted. What does it actually mean to claim the name of Jesus, to call yourself a Christian? And I suggested, I think, from, my Roman, uh, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, that conversion involves, in this case, turning aside from following idols and now turning to live in repentance and faith uh, that people might live rightly in God's world. In week five, two weeks ago, we looked at what Paul's motivation was for writing to the Thessalonians, mainly reminding them of how he was when he was with them. Uh, we once again saw that the nature of conversion involves more than just turning, but actually we unpacked this and when we looked at the way in which Paul lived, we saw that actually conversion involves living a godly life and I suggested to you that this would then actually act as a model for Christian service. Uh, last week we looked at uh, the idea of what Paul is like when he was apart from the Thessalonians in the last part of chapter 2 and most of chapter 3. Uh, we looked at the thing that Paul boasts in. Uh, we looked at the thing that he is most fearful of and in this case the thing he was most fearful of was that perhaps the Thessalonians had been persuaded away from the faith by the suffering that they had been enduring. Timothy's Gospel, remember his great news that he comes proclaiming, is that, no, no, not only are the Thessalonians persevering, but they miss Paul just as much as he misses them. And so Timothy finishes, uh, Paul finishes in this little doxological prayer at the end of chapter 3. Uh, this week, as we try and finish the letter, and we won't quite get to the end, uh, we're going to look at three broad things. Firstly, Paul's motive for writing to the Thessalonians, uh, in this case giving them three big ideas that he has, and then living well at the end. So now as we turn to the passage and we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 1 to 2, what can be said about Paul's motive for writing to them? Well, I want to suggest to you that Paul here in these verses, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, presents three key ideas. 
before we get to the ideas, it's worth remembering here, I think, that Paul recognises that manner of living will flow from, consistently from thinking and attitude. Now, this is not particularly a Christian idea, I think, although Paul is very keen to pick this up from a Christian point of view. Paul recognises that the things that you think about, the attitude that you have towards things, are generally made evident and expressed in your manner of expression, be it your speech, be it the way in which you spend your time, the tasks that you turn your hands and desires to. And we see this now flowing through this particular passage in chapter 4. So Paul's motive for his instruction to the Thessalonians in this case um, is, not, is, I think, a lot more than just an argument for consistency of living. Uh, Paul could have taken a very philosophical approach and said, I really want you to live consistently and that's why I'm going to write to you. No, actually, Paul is interested in the fact that the Thessalonians live consistently, but I think his motive stems from other things. And they are seen here in chapter 4, verses 1 to 2. What are the three things that drive Paul's motive? Firstly, we see it there in verse 1 of chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. The manner of living that the Thessalonians are carrying out is pleasing to God. That's one of Paul's key motives. Live a life that is pleasing to God. And in this case, the way in which the Thessalonians have started to live, because they have heard, understood the Gospel, they have turned from idols and now live a life which seeks to please God, as Paul now hears from the news that Timothy has brought and is relieved to hear that they are living as they had started, Paul's motive for writing is to say, the life that you are living, dear friends, is pleasing to God. Therefore, continue in that manner of living. Secondly, though, I think as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Paul's motive is grounded in the fact that because he has been entrusted and approved by God, the command that he gives comes with great weight. Now, you see it there, don't you? That Paul gives them the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul speaks here with significant authority. And that's Paul's second motive. He desires that the authoritative word of God that he has been given actually be made known to others and then followed accordingly. That they too, in their life, would continue to please God. And thirdly, and I sort of think derivatively from both of them, and we've already mentioned this, is that the Thessalonians are already doing what God desires. They have turned from idols, they continue to turn from idols as they live a life which is focused on God and they have begun to live in a lifestyle more broadly which actually pleases God. And while this brings Paul great joy as we've seen in earlier chapters, I think this is one of the other motives as to why Paul writes to them again in this particular section of his letter to continue to urge them to live a life which pleases God. Now, in this particular section, I think there's a little bit of uncertainty as to whether or not what Paul is writing to them is completely new and things that they had not heard from his teaching while he was there or whether or not he was writing, reminding them of all the things that he had been talking to them about. Uh, I'm not really going to go to the stake on which of the two that I think it is. Could Paul have talked to them about all these things? Yes, quite possibly. Might he not have talked to them about some of the things? Yes, possibly. Does it really matter? Well, on one hand, yes because then Paul would be reminding them about a manner of life in which he should already be expecting them to be living. 
If he's not yet talked to them about this, then you would expect that this would be of some news to the Thessalonians and may create some concern for them if perhaps they had not yet heard it. Uh, The only thing that probably leans me towards suggesting that Paul had already talked to them about all these things is in a couple of little places that we'll see. Paul uses the word, as I remind you. And elsewhere, remember last week when we looked at this little phrase, that the Thessalonians are, are only lacking one thing. Now, last week I think I ran out of time and didn't get to tell you what that was. Is that correct? Yeah, in chapter 3, you remember that in chapter 3? How Paul says, I'm writing to you that I might make up what is lacking in your faith. I think the thing, the only thing that the Thessalonians are lacking actually is seeing Paul face to face. I think in all other aspects of their faith, they have fully heard all that they need to know for salvation. Paul, despite the fact that he'd only been with them for three weeks, has already indicated to them the means of life the manner of life in which he would like them to live. And so I suspect that he has already had a conversation with them about brotherly love. He's already had a conversation with them about the return of Jesus and he's already had a conversation with them about living a holy life, the three things that we see here in chapter 4. So let's move on, now that we've looked at Paul's motive, to look at the three key ideas that come out of the passage. And they are holiness, the second one is brotherly love, and the third one is living rightly in the last days. And the bulk, the most, the bulk of our time will be spent looking at these particular sections. So let's look at them each in turn. Uh, in chapter 4, verses 3 to 8, Paul now deals with the answer to, I think, one of life's most perplexing questions. Well, it might not have been for the Thessalonians, but I think in my experience as ministering to people like you guys, university students, at your stage of life, your most perplexing question is, how do I know what God's will for my life is? This is the question that invariably comes up on your lips. This is the question that many of you, I think, are seeking to wrestle with and some of you get greatly troubled by trying to work out what it is. Well, friends, I'm really pleased that you've come to public meetings today because I'm going to give you the answer. I'm going to give you the answer to what God's will for your life is. And it's not written on my forehead, nor is it written up on the screen. It's in the text. So look with me and let's see what God's will for your life is. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. I'm sorry if you're expecting more. I'm sorry if you're expecting a career path or a life plan in great detail. But actually God doesn't give us that level of detail, does he? Because he actually doesn't need to. Why? Because he's made it clear that one of the most important things that God wills for your life is that you are sanctified. So next time someone asks you the question, have you discovered God's will for your life? You can say, yes, I have actually. It's here in the Bible. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's that God wills that I be sanctified. And if they're a believer, you can say to them, do you know what? Actually, this is God's will for your life as well. God's will for your life, sanctification. So let's spend a moment trying to work out what this means. Well, in many respects, the way in which I think to try and understand this word is is a combination of two words and it just means purely to make holy or as Rowan would say as we head back into Leviticus, holification, if I may steal his term or righteousification and I can't even pronounce it properly. But I think in this case, the word sanctification means to make holy. On one hand, it's not a complicated word. 
But I think we often get caught up in trying to work out exactly what this means and the implications that it has for us. So briefly, when the Bible speaks of sanctification, it often refers to, it refers to the word sanctification in two different ways. Firstly, it refers to it in an outward sanctifying, an outward making holy or holification. And in many respects in the Old Testament, during, say, various ceremonial rituals, people and some ceremonial items, for example, the tabernacle, through a process of offerings and the shedding of blood, are declared sanctified. But it's an outward sanctification. In this case, I think what it's really talking about here is that the idea is consistent with the usage of the broader word holiness, which means to set apart or to separate. See, the sanctifying, in this case, the outward sanctifying, is that various objects, and in some cases people, are set apart for a particular purpose. And in some cases they are declared to be holy. So in this case, that's, if you like, the outward understanding of what it means to be sanctified. In the New Testament we see some evidence of this, but the idea that's developed under the, uh, with regard to sanctification in the New Testament is much more of a significant inward or moral cleansing, an inward or moral making holy. And so the process here is really regarded as a spiritual one rather than an outward or a ceremonial one. In this case, because it's a spiritual one, it involves a significant work of the Holy Spirit in the life, the heart and the mind, I take it, of the believer, where God is working to bring the life of the believer in conformity to God's character. And God's character, as we know from elsewhere, in an underlying sense, is holy. So sanctification is the process by which as Christians, from the point of conversion, we now become more and more like God. We become more holy. Now, sometimes you can use phrases like walking in holiness, not yet perfected. For I take it the weight of the New Testament indicates that perfection arrives only once the Lord Jesus has returned or we have gone to glory and we are seated with him in the heavenlies. The idea of sanctification can also be described as the evidence of God working in you, a process of growing more like Jesus. If you like from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 to 10, it's that ongoing faith component of repentance. Uh, did you notice that in the video that was showed to us when the second person who was interviewed said this? I hadn't, hadn't seen that video until today and so it fits in really nicely, so thank you for showing us the video. Did you notice what she said? She said, day by day I see my life changing as I read the Word of God. That, friends, presumably that, the that, that her life is changing to be more and more like Jesus, that is sanctification at work. See, Paul here then gives us an example of the lives of the Thessalonians and how he desires that they be sanctified, that they become more and more like God, that they become more and more holy. And it really was for them, and I think still remains for us, a key life issue and that is sexuality. Uh, there you see it in verse 3. Paul's direct command is that the Thessalonians abstain from sexual immorality. Uh, Paul here doesn't go into great specifics, nor does he address a particular congregational issue that may have presented itself in the Thessalonian congregation, unlike, for example, when he speaks in some of his letters to the believers at Corinth, where he addresses particular issues of sexual immorality. However, here notice the comparison that Paul makes 
It's between the lives of the believers and the way in which Paul is expecting them to live and the lives of those around about them who are not living a life which demonstrates God at work in them. The lives of the Thessalonians are to be very unlike the lives of the pagans round about them. The lives of the pagans very clearly here, they are those who do not know God, hence Paul labels them the pagan, and they are described as living in passionate lust. And when we start to explore what this issue looks like, we start to see sanctification seen clearly. In this case, sanctification with regard to avoiding sexual immorality is a developing practice of demonstrating control over one's body. You see that in verse 4, don't you? And this control, I take it, is shown by a manner of lifestyle that is holy, that is set apart from others, that is different from others, and in being different from others, therefore, is honourable and pleasing to God. It is only made possible because of the indwelling and ongoing work of the Holy Spirit that the Thessalonians would have received at their conversion. Now, because God has certain standards and he expects people to live by them, notice there in verse 7, God expects people everywhere to live pure and holy lives. But when people don't live in this manner, as we see in verse 5, we see that at its heart the behaviour of not living rightly before God flows from a lack of right understanding about who God is. His will for the world, sanctification, and his good and, and right commands that people should obey them. Consequently, when people don't live the way God intends them to live, we see there in verse 6, the consequences are that God will punish those who continue to live in a manner which is not consistent with the manner that God desires and commands. Now, in many respects, that's a little case study of sanctification. The expectation is a developing practice of demonstrating control over the body with regard to sexual behaviour, both thoughts, speech and actions. It's also worth pointing out here the implications of a lifestyle which is not pleasing to God impacts not only yourself but others also. Notice here in verse 6 the warning that Paul gives uh, and here the warning is that you do not wrong your brother or sister in this matter. Uh, uh, Some of the other translations will place it that you do not lead them away. Uh, There's almost as if, if you follow after the practice of the pagans and if you live a life which is sexually immoral, the danger is that you will draw your brother and or sister away from a holy and godly life. And Paul warns against that. And here in this particular section about holiness, as we'll see in the other two sections, one of the sort of grounded underlying frameworks that Paul has got is actually care and concern for other people. And so here one of the reasons why Paul writes is because he wants the Thessalonians in the way in which they act with regard to sexuality and sexual immorality to be thinking about their brothers and sisters and also to show great care and concern for others who are outside, I take it, the family of God in whom, in, with the world in which they live. 
So my question is, why do we struggle with this? Why do we struggle with this idea of sanctification? But more sharply, why do we struggle with this idea of seeking to live a life which flees from sexual immorality? And I want to say at this point that this is very difficult. This is not an easy thing to do. On our own, by our own efforts, it is actually very difficult to live a life that pleases God. And at this point, we need to be thankful that God has actually taken out our disobedient heart at its nature, taken out our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. He has enabled the Holy Spirit to dwell within us that when our body, which is still a disobedient body, continues to resist the good will of God, that the Holy Spirit is there and He continues to point us back to the Lord Jesus. He continues to guide us back into a right knowledge of the truth. I think part of the reason why we struggle for this, why we struggle with this and why it is so difficult is on one hand very obvious and it's because we live in a world where the Lord has not yet returned. We live in a world where we are not yet perfected and we live with the frustrations of this. But at the same time, the world doesn't make it any easier for us. The current culture in which we live is thoroughly pagan. Do you, do you ever use that phrase to describe the culture? How was your day? Oh, I had to hang out with all the pagans on campus. <laughs> Except when I went to public meetings and I was generally with my brothers and sisters. It's just not a language that we use, is it? And I think in some senses we started, we've started to delude ourselves, thinking the world is not actually nearly as bad as it is. The world's generally a good place, isn't it? The world's generally a good place. There are just some people who are really nasty and we make sure that if we catch them doing nasty things, we lock them up. But generally, most people are good. Friends, if that's your view of the world and we don't have time to do it now, but you need to actually reorientate your view of the world. The world is basically pagan. The world, and particularly our country, does not love God, which means it's a pagan world. And we actually, we need to get that into our heads. We need to recognise and see the world rightly for what it is. It is a place which continues to walk away from God. It is a place which is in desperate need of hearing that the way in which they're walking, the worship of idols and the manner of lifestyle is not only detrimental to them in the here and now, but is actually condemning them at the time at which the Lord Jesus returns and the wrath of God will be fully evident. The symptom, for some, is their manner of lifestyle, which in this case is sexual immorality. While the current culture is strongly pagan, I think the culture in which we live creates a yes-yes mentality. Yes, 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 yes. We seem to want to be able to say yes to everything. That's partly, I think, because we're driven by consumerism, which is just generally a yes, 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 yes to everything and more and more. But notice here, what is Paul teaching? Not inconsistently with the rest of Scripture. Actually, the Christian needs to say no, no, no. How often do you do that? really easy to say yes, isn't it? Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Need a new phone? iPhone 5s are coming out. Ooh, yes. New Samsung's come out. Ooh, yes. They've released uh, PDAs on your phone now. Who would have thought? They came out in the 60s, by the way, just so you were wondering, in cartoons. We tend to want to say yes, 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 don't we? I'll take it here particularly with regard to sexual immorality, 
we need to be able to say no. And this, friends, is very difficult. Because every time we say no, when our culture around about us is saying yes, 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 we are sending a clear message to the culture around about us. I do not want to live the way you are living. I do not agree with your lifestyle and I will not live like you. I'm making no moral judgment as to whether or not you love them less or love them more. We're purely saying that in this case, Paul is urging restraint. He is not urging the lifestyle of the pagan. I think this is very difficult for us, but notice the sobering reminder that we're given in verse 8 to conclude the section. In our temptation towards sexual immorality, the sobering reminder that we see there in verse 8 is that if we disregard this command, the call, I take it, to purity and holiness, then we are not disregarding the suggestion of another human, but we are disregarding the very command of God. And friends, that should weigh heavily on us. Who is it that we will follow? What voices will we listen to? And to whom will we be obedient? Will we continue to place our trust in the Word of God, that what God says is actually right and best for us? Or or will we continue to place our trust in the words of our culture, which endorses things contrary to what God would have us do? Okay, so the second section, uh, the second section here in verses 9 to 12 is somewhat briefer, and that's good because I'm starting to run out of time. And uh, this section is on brotherly love. I I get this sense, but I've got no evidence for it, that Paul, it gives Paul great joy to write this section. I I sense that he would be more distressed writing the previous section as he thinks back to the Thessalonians. Remember, he's still apart from them. He remembers the pagan city in which they live and he really is almost pleading with them. Friends, do not go back to the pagan ways. Do not go back to the worship of idols. Do not indulge in the sexual immorality that some of your neighbours may be indulging in. But here, what does he say in verses 9 to 11, or verses 9 to 12? He instructs them them in the area of brotherly love. Uh, He already recognises that they've been taught by God in what it means to love one another, and they've demonstrated their other person-centredness in the love for God's family in the region. And so Paul's encouragement is not to stop doing that and move on to something else. No, Paul's encouragement is, brothers, he says, do this more and more. And do it more and more, and be ambitious. Who would have thought the second biggest question in life has now been solved in this passage? First biggest question in life, what's God's will for me? And second biggest question is, is it okay to be ambitious in life? Because when you're at Sydney University, this is one of the most ambitious places to study, isn't it? This is sort of the springboard to any form of ambition that you can have. You are thoroughly prepared for it. You're in the trajectory. To what shall I be ambitious? Would you, would you be surprised to know the, the answers in here? Notice here what the, the answer gives. Uh, in, uh, in the NIV, I think it translates it as ambition. Uh, the ESV translates it as aspiration. And it's there in verse 11. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire or be ambitious, to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Hmm, come on, Paul, can you do better than that? What about be the best in my field? What about make lots of money? What about go and change the world? What about go... No, actually, Paul here has other things in mind. The ambition that Paul gives, that they be ambitious to lead a quiet life, which is characterised by minding your own business, meeting your own needs, 
and being an example to others in doing so. Why? Because this, friends, is an other-person-centred ambition. It's an other-person-centred ambition because others will respect your manner of living, in verse 11, and you will, if you work with your own hands and provide for yourself, you will not need be dependent upon them. So, once again, the trajectory of Paul's command for brotherly love is other-person-centredness. My challenge to us today is, could this be said of your life now? Maybe put a note in your diary for 12 months' time and say, could this be said of my life now? And work in the next 12 months to make sure it is more and more so. Thirdly, the last days. And it will be the last days in the last couple of minutes. One of Paul's underlying theological frameworks does concern the return of Jesus, as I've suggested. And here in this section, we see one of the most extensive sections concerning the return of Jesus in the New Testament, actually. What what causes Paul to write to them about these things? Well, uh, I think verse 13 gives us the motive. Firstly, Paul is keen to teach the Thessalonians about what happens after people die. And the language that Paul uses here is those who have fallen asleep. Secondly, Paul is also keen that his hearers are reminded of what they've put their hope in, namely that Jesus is returning. And so what about those who have died before the return of Jesus? What's going to happen to them? Will it only be those who are alive when Jesus returns who will go to heaven? What's going to happen to those who are sort of now in the grave? And some of the Thessalonians may start being concerned about this. So Paul gives them some teaching on it. Uh, There's three key components to address. Firstly, what will take place? When will it take place and how do I live now? In many respects, I think as you read through the text, it's reasonably self-explanatory, is it not? It's just stuff that we don't read all the time. So we do well to pause and have a think about it. What is going to take place? Well, in verse 14, we see that because Jesus is alive, God will take to himself all those who belong to him. First and foremost, it's those who have fallen asleep in Christ. It's those who are now dead. Secondly, This takes place upon the return of Jesus from heaven. Uh, There's this metaphor of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, which I think is the metaphor for the final judgment of God. And the priority is given to those who have died first and then those who are still living, if the Lord returned right now, the dead would rise and then those of us who are believers would join Christ. Paul's hope is that upon being reminded or perhaps even informed about what will take place, that the Thessalonians will notice Be encouraged. This is meant to be an encouraging message. This is not meant to be one which scares people, particularly believers. This is a message of comfort. This is a message of hope, a message of great encouragement. My question is, when someone is in need of encouragement, how often do you read this passage of Scripture with them? Because I take it that this passage of Scripture is actually very encouraging for people because it reminds people of where the whole world is heading. It reminds us of where our lives are heading. Our lives are heading to the reality of an eternal physical union with the Lord Jesus. Face to face with God forever. And friends, that takes place when Jesus returns. When will it take place? Well, when it returns, and we see there in the beginning part of chapter 5, this language of the day of the Lord. If we had more time, I'd tell you more about that. You'll have to go and do some reading about that. Suffice to say, the day of the Lord language is one which has an Old Testament background in Amos chapter 5 and it brings to a finality all of the things of this world and ushers in a new era. It's a day of judgment, it's a day of reconciliation, it's a day of restoration, it's a day that brings to conclusion 
the ways of humanity that God can no longer stand. And I think it's this background that Paul has in mind when he writes. The timing is therefore known only to God. And so we see here in this last part of chapter 5 how it is that Paul will have us live and his command is that Paul wants us to live not in darkness but as people of the light. And at this point the metaphor changes. The the sleep metaphor that he was using in the early part of chapter 4 is not the same as the one in chapter 5 because he makes a comparison between those who are of the day and I think he's also making a bit of a play of words about those who are of the day of the Lord, those who are looking for that day and those who are of the night, those who are ashamed of that day, those who want to hide from that day, those who are not looking forward to it. Paul says, live rightly and his motive here is because Christ has died. Once again, encourage one another in verse 11 with these particular words. So to finish and to try and wrap up our last four weeks, what of the Christian life? Can I suggest to you that it's a life of perseverance? It's a life of rightly understanding where the world is going. It is a life of waiting expectantly for the imminent return of the Lord Jesus. It is a life which seeks sanctification and fulfilment in knowing that a converted life is one which pleases God. It is a life which seeks to be an example to others, both to the believers with whom you live and fellowship and also to the unbeliever who observes your life and wonders why you live in that manner. It is a life which ultimately brings glory to God and at its heart it's a life which is fundamentally other person-centred as it seeks to live out the call of discipleship and following Jesus. So for those of you in the room who are perhaps still not yet converted, who are still passionate about following the ways of the world and the idols of this world, once again can I urge you, as I have over the last couple of weeks, today is the day to consider your life, to consider the claim that Jesus has on your life and to consider asking that God would change your life in turning you from that manner of life to live a life that is pleasing to God. For the return of the Lord Jesus could be any day. Let's pray. Father God, in your kindness we give you thanks once again for your word. We thank you that in it you help us to know how you want us to live rightly. Father God, we pray please for your help in living rightly in this disobedient world. Father, we ask please that in your kindness the Lord Jesus may return quickly, that we may go to be with you. Father, while we await, we ask, please, that you would help us to persevere. Father, we ask, please, that you would continue to work through your Holy Spirit in our lives, that you would sanctify us day by day, week by week, making us more and more like Jesus and enabling us to live well in this world. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Our friends, as Paddy alluded-